This week on a lively experiment, Rhode Island lawmakers take on the abortion issue during a lengthy floor debate. And mobile sports betting appears to be on the fast track, but will it face a court challenge? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... For 30 years, a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us on the panel, Bill Lynch, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party, Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi, and political reporter for the Providence Journal, Patrick Anderson. Hello and welcome. I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. It was an historic night at the Rhode Island State House Thursday as the House passed an abortion rights bill by a margin of 44 to 30, with some Democrats rising to speak against the bill along with their Republican colleagues. One of the major storylines, a House speaker who allowed the bill to come to the floor, even though he announced before the debate he would be among those voting no. Patrick, you had a front row seat for this. Uh, There are a lot of subtext here. What stood out to you? What did you see that maybe we didn't see on TV from your vantage point? Well, it was odd to see a floor debate on a big issue where House leadership were not pulling the strings, were not whipping votes and twisting arms to get lawmakers to vote one way or another. Uh, As far as I could tell, they really just let things play out as as they were going to play out. And you don't see that very often. Um, But they knew that the votes were there, that this was was going to pass. Um, That's why it made it to the the floor in the first place. Um, So it was really an amazing night of of just watching things play out um, and people speak their mind uh, very freely. Were you surprised by the margin, or did you expect that? No, that was about what we expected. Um, you know, when you, when you look at uh, past positions and where you think everyone was, you know, that's where you came into the year thinking people were on this issue. Lisa? Yeah, I think, and also what's unusual about it is this timing of it. We're in early March, and normally um, issues of substance, they just don't happen this early. So I think the leadership was correct in bringing this uh, bill forward right now because if they waited until the end of the session, if they waited to June when we're talking about budget, it could get caught up in the horse trading, and you don't want an issue like this to be caught up that way. So I think they were right to take the temperature on it, but now it's putting the burden on the Senate. The Senate stopped it the last time. Will the Senate stop at this time? What's happening to the Democratic Party? We're we're deciding things in March. The Speaker's letting things out. What is is wrong with this Democratic (laughs) Party? It's a new day. It it, it pretty much dismisses everything that we've heard, not from Lisa, but but from (laughs) the chairman of the Republican Party that many people refer to as he who must not be named. Because for years, all we've heard about is that nothing will ever come to the floor in the House for a vote. The Speaker controls everything. Everybody else there is just a rubber stamp. This pretty much puts that to bed because the speaker has said clearly and, and voted against uh, the bill, uh, but you know, there was no interference. There was no attempt to stop this from getting to the House floor. This could have been held up in the committee, you know, had the speaker probably wanted to do that. So uh, it's a new day, and I think that that's been happening for years up at the State House, despite, um, you know, reports to the contrary from, from uh, the other side of the aisle. Uh, and I think this was a perfect example. Um, look, 
It's a difficult issue. It's always been a difficult issue. I mean, this came up years ago when I was the, you know, the chair of the party um, because it's one of the few issues, uh, in my estimation, that there's really no room to compromise. I mean, you know, it, it's black and white, and, and there are very good people on both sides of the issue. There are learned and educated arguments on both sides of the issue and very strong personal opinions and feelings on both sides and, that, of the and that's why it played out over four and a half hours do you think anybody who walked in there last night changed the way they voted before they before they walked in i think what we saw is every member really took this seriously that they really put a lot of thought into this and again i just want to commend the speaker for for bringing it up because what has happened in the past few years too we've seen the composition of the house change we have more women we have more people who are of progressive um, you know, of, of leaning. We also, on the national level, have the potential of a uh, case going to the Supreme Court, which makes this issue more necessary. Last year, you remember, at the end of the session, the Speaker was saying, oh, this is not an imminent threat. We don't need to, to um, you know, take this up right now. But here we are a year later. He's listening to his constituents. He's listening to his members of the House, and he brought this to a vote. Yeah, I think that one of the big takeaways is that elections have consequences, even state rep races that people won't, don't pay that much attention to. This is because the numbers have changed and progressives have done well in the last couple of election cycles. And the speaker does still control everything uh, up there until he's in danger of not being speaker or not being able to pass the budget. And then he has to strike deals and reevaluate things um, to let his other, the rest of his agenda uh, go through. Yeah, I'm not so sure it's so much that the, the change at, at the House, although there have been changes um, uh, with the last election, no question about it, as, so, as much as it is the more realization that there's, there's a crazy guy in the White House uh, and, and having watched the Kavanaugh situation with the Supreme Court, I think I agree with Patrick. There are huge consequences to elections, and I think a lot of people, including people here in Rhode Island, saw what happened with Kavanaugh and looked at the Supreme Court, as Lisa points out, and I think that it gave a lot more incentive to say, unlike a year ago, you know, this is more realistic now with, with Trump in the White House, and there are things we need to act on and be concerned about and be proactive rather than like we do so often, which is after something happens, then we go back and we try to fix it. So I think that was really the incentive to push this now. You know, I, and I just wanted to take a look at the Supreme Court back in 73 when Roe v. Wade was, was approved. It was all white males. But what was interesting about it is that the majority of the justices were appointed by Republican presidents. So I know that era of 73 is quite different than we are right now. But I have to think that the Chief Justice John Roberts, does he really want to be the one presiding over a court that's going to overturn such a major, what has been a major right for women for decades? And I don't see that happening. You know, the other thing is the so-called Reform Caucus there was a lot of hue and cry at the beginning. Is it going to be a tough session? Don't you think this also helps the speaker a little bit when they come to him? Some of the some of the female legislators will say, "Well, you didn't pass," and we'll talk about the equal pay in a minute. But they say, "Well, you didn't pass it." Well, the speaker can say, "Well, look, I, I was personally opposed to this bill, and I let it out on the floor." So you know, doesn't that take a little air out of their balloon? Yeah, I think it diffuses some of the tension, some of the animosity, and and will make things a little less uh, confrontational. Uh, in the House. Um, yeah, I, I think the, a lot of the Reform Caucus, uh, the, the members uh, that are pro-choice and to which abortion is a big issue, 
they can they can take a victory from this, um, but know that they, it, their confrontation might not be as big a part of what goes uh, forward in the next couple of months. All right. We have been talking a lot about the governor's budget uh, since she released it almost a couple of months ago. Lisa, let me begin with you. There, there are a couple of sub um, texts going on here. The, in a very rare letter or, or note, the uh, Senate and House Finance Chairman said to the administration, look, we're a little concerned about this, the spending. You're not reeling it in here. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the beach fees and, and one time and all of that. So give me, we haven't had you on recently about the budget. What is your thought about that and, and how the, you know, the, now the legislature's getting involved. And the legislature has Give a Lisa role. one minute to tell us all about the governor's entire. <laughs> <laughs> Try to be brief. Okay. <laughs> Start. <laughs> I mean, the, the legislature, they, they, their role is oversight, and it's always been that. What's been unusual is having this letter become public going forward, having them express their views on it. And her budget does once again start just always chipping away. And my concern about this is she got reelected. She's not going before the people. She has political capital. We really should look at our tax structure here. She's been campaigning on, I have no broad-based taxes increases during the time. Now could be the time that we look at, instead of picking and choosing winners and losers, you know, t- uh, taxing lobbyists for their services, taxing landscape, taxing the blue bug, that we should look at the overall tax structure. And perhaps it's time to consider, do we lower the overall sales tax but make it uniform across the board so it's equally... So she has the ability right now to do something major like that instead of the chipping away that she's done in this um, budget proposal. There's been a lot of blowback on a lot of these fees that are coming out now and taxing and whatever. It's, you know, it's cobble, cobble, cobble to get to the $10 billion. Yeah, I mean, look, at yes, there has been. And people always push back on when those things happen, right? We'd all like to go to the beach for free and have all kinds of things for free, but we also want the cleanest beaches, the best beaches, trash cans, which we talked about a year ago on the beaches, and those things cost money. So there's always sort of this wrestling back and forth about how do we give the best possible opportunities at the lowest possible cost, and the governor came up with some ideas, you know, which which are going to face some pushback in the House and in the Senate as the process goes forward. But, you know, and I've said this before, there's always a certain amount of tension, we'll call it, or debate after the governor releases a budget, which is really a working document, right? I mean, no governor, Republican or Democrat, ever releases a budget and that's it. It always goes to the House and then it starts this back and forth, which is what's sort of starting to happen now. That's always been the case. And there's always been some pushback, um, some years more so than other years, but there are going to be things yeah, that are going to be we've modified. Had a lot of Republican <clears throat> well, no, it happened. That's that's. I don't think so. We, that happened under Bruce Sundlin. I mean, I know I'm showing my age now, but and it happened as, when Phil Noel was there. Um, probably not so much under Joe Gatti. What about Governor Noddy? Can you uh, talk about that? You have to ask him about Governor Noddy. I don't know. What so? <clears throat> Wait, so what's going to happen? Well, I think the thing to keep in mind uh, on taxes specifically is that they are cutting taxes. The car tax cuts, the phase-out, are still happening, and they're, they're big, and people kind of forget about that. But that's taking a large chunk every year out of revenues, and they're still trying to do the same things they're doing, and they're not really cutting costs while the car tax cuts are happening. So that's creating a lot of this tension and a lot of the budget gaps you're seeing. I think the governor is already maybe, you know, revising some of her uh, wish list down and, and looking to looking maybe more to pre-kindergarten to get that 
funded. Um, it, it doesn't look hugely likely that she'll get get her entire uh, R.I. promise of free college proposal. Um, and that's $10 million right there. So if you're trying to balance the budget and that goes, that makes up for a lot of the other scooping of the quasis and all of that, right? And that's true. And also what the letter pointed out, too, was they're, they're doing their proper oversight and the level of personnel, the state workers. And we've seen the number going up, and it can, continues to go up, even though there was a buyout to bring it down. So it was, you know, let's get rid of the higher-paid state workers, but then let's hire a whole bunch of lower-paid workers, too. So what is the right level of personnel that we should have for the government of our size? Yeah, I don't think there's anything at this point, as we sit here today, that's dramatically different from what I've seen for years and years and years. And, and as the budget estimates begin to come in additionally, there'll be more adjustments that'll be made as we you know, go through the session and get into April, May, June, and towards the end of the legislative session and the new budget year, you know, it starts the end of June. So I think that what you'll see is a lot of give and take. You'll see an increased number of meetings and negotiations with the governor's team, with the, with the speaker and the leadership in the House and in the Senate, all hoping, I think, collectively to move towards some type of compromise that provides people in Rhode Island with the best possible uh, resources at the lowest possible cost. It's not easy to do. And are you hearing revenues for May maybe down a little bit? That's some of the buzz that I'm hearing. We won't know until the revenue estimating conference comes out. But if we look to a downturn, that that creates another challenge, right? That's what it sounds like, and they're they're not getting what they wanted from sports betting that that continues to lag, um, and and they think they're still trying to figure out how the federal tax cuts um, of a year ago or two years ago are kind of are shaking out, and how they're they're how they affected the budget last year, and now if that's coming back this year. So they're, they're still trying to figure out what's going on with, with tax revenue. Let's talk about the mobile betting. Um, it seems to be on the fast track. Uh, this is pre- uh, Senate President Ruggiero is, wants to uh, obviously not have to go to Twin River to be able to do it on your phone. Now I'm hearing just late this week that there may be a challenge. And I know Joe Larissa was very involved in this. So set the table for us about maybe why there should have been the crux of the case is uh, voter approval on this for an expansion of gambling. Because a number of years ago, the voters said that they wanted the say um, whether uh, gambling would be expanded in the state or not. So when this came forward last year, I've been surprised that there hasn't been a legal challenge. I've been waiting for it to happen. I'm not a lawyer, but just based on my understanding of what the voters approved about the expansion of gambling and what this is, this is an expansion of gambling. And I went back and I looked at the ballot um, in 2012 and 2016 to say, okay, what did we vote for? And there was nothing in there that said, if you vote in favor, you're voting in favor of sports gaming, you're voting in favor of of a mobile app to do it. It speaks back to the Class 3 gaming. So even if you go back to the definition of Class 3 gaming and you, and you, you do the research, there's nothing in there that says sports betting. So I would say the vast majority of people who voted in 2012 and 2016 for the expansion of gambling did not vote in favor or did not know they were voting in favor of sports gaming. Look, we have a lawyer on the set. Lisa's not a lawyer, but you are. Do you want to weigh in on that? Well, this, the, the, the whole debate now, again, with Joe Larissa and Brandon Bell, that they've been having these private meetings to talk about and strategize about how to sue to stop the expansion of gambling. If they're going to do it, let them do it. I don't know where the money's going to come from. 
the, the, the bottom line in my estimation, and I'll say for full disclosure, I'm not a gambler. It's never appealed to me. I'm not adverse to it, but it, it, I'm, I'm not attracted to it. I'm the worst person for Twin River or anywhere because I'll go there for dinner or concert and not gamble on anything. But I don't oppose it. The bottom line to me is that people in Rhode Island, in my opinion, want gambling um, I think that they're in favor of it. Believe me, when I do go to Twin River or when I'm at the courthouse talking to people about it, it's not Democrats that want gambling. It's Democrats, Republicans, independents. It's here to stay. It's a necessary, whether we like it or not, it's a necessary part of funding the government process. And I think if we do it, we've got a lottery commission. Um, it's here. It's not going away. But isn't a lot away. of it procedural? Because in the mid-90s, you remember, they voted all of those things down. Now it's kind of ho-hum gambling. If they put it on a ballot, or don't you think that people would approve it? I do think, but, but the voters wanted their say, and they didn't get their say. And what, the way everything played out last year, it could have gone on the November ballot, because it wasn't up and running until after the election anyway. So they could have put it on the ballot, more than likely. I think people would vote in favor of it, and would it, be, it would be a settled issue. But it didn't go to the voters. I think the Republicans are right to bring a challenge to it, and let's see where the courts land on I it. I think the Republicans are right again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another it question, <laughs> if it, assuming that, it, that it, there isn't uh, a, a legal issue that stops it, is are the state leaders limiting how much money they can make from it by keeping things restricted to Twin River and IGT, are they giving these very well-connected companies a monopoly, and that's hurting the potential tax revenue that could be generated from gambling? Um, that's what some of the other gambling companies are saying. You know, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's another question that's hanging over all of this. And where, where is it now, though? It's in the Senate. Does it still have to go back to the House? Where does it stand it's legislatively? Passed, well, the, the, the mobile being able to place the bets on your phone has passed the Senate, and it is expected to, to go to the House floor soon. All right, Patrick, let's stay with you. You've been writing about there's a uh, equal pay uh, legislation that came up last year. The, the uh, proponents were upset because they thought it got gutted. It's coming back. But this is part of a larger package, and it goes back to some of what we talked about with the Reform Caucus. So you wrote about this this week. Where does it stand, and where do you think it's going? It's a good question. And, and how does the abortion bill passing change the calculus? Does that remove some of the pressure on leadership to pass uh, the equal pay bill, which you know, the speaker was not crazy about last year, and uh, he showed a lot of deference to the business community and, and their objections to it. Um, it's, that's the next big question that we're, we'll be trying to look for signs on whether there's enough momentum to get this through. The Senate supports it, so you know, it will be in uh, horse trading and negotiating with the Senate. And uh, it's, it's a question mark. That's one thing that hasn't changed, right? The horse trading <laughs> at the end of the session. Does that still happen? It's, it's happened in ancient Rome, and it's going to happen <laughs> when you're here 50 years from now doing this program. That's not going to change. $15 minimum wage is part of it. What do you think about that? Okay, so um, I've long looked at the minimum wage. The minimum wage should not be your living wage. The minimum wage should be the entry into the workforce and then give you the ability to climb up your pay scale. So what we continue to see is when we're, we're kind of chipping away and we're making it go higher, you know, a little bit here next year, a little bit here next year. 
businesses, it drives them crazy because there's no predictable way for them to budget how much they need to have in salary. So if we are indeed going to a $15 minimum wage in the state of Rhode Island, let's set the date for it. Let's, you know, years out, say by this year, let's have it at 15 just to give the businesses time to prepare for it. Minimum wage, what do you think? Well, all those issues, I think uh, they're going to be part of the negotiation process. I think the, min- I think the minimum wage is we have to raise it. I but mean, conceptually, people- what do you think about $15 minimum wage? I think, look, I don't think there's a magic number, but I think people now can't live on the minimum wage, and I think that's not what it was designed to do, so I think it has to increase. I think it's probably proper to increase it incrementally so that businesses do know where we're going, and I think that's the direction the legislation's going in. With respect to equal pay, there's nobody I know that's State House Democrat, I don't know about the Republicans, that don't agree that everybody should be paid equally when they do the same job. There were, there were last year in the House, there were some differences about the language and the legislation, and it led to a complete breakdown of negotiations very late in the session, which is, of course, the other problem. But do you think $15 hurts small businesses? That's really what it comes down to. Well, I I don't personally know. Uh, And and I think that that it benefits businesses because now you've got families, individuals who are making more money and have more money to spend. The minimum wage has been raised in other areas of the country, which is what frequently Rhode Island does, is look to what's happened in other areas and what has happened. It hasn't been devastating where it has been implemented. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I think, I'm not sure if it was Seattle or San Francisco that raised it to $15 an hour. And what you start seeing is they're doing it because they have to, but then the number of jobs decrease. So people lose their jobs to be able to help pay for people making $15. So there are um, other places that we can look at if we're going in that direction to see the plus and minuses of doing this. All right. Let's, uh, we've got a couple other things. Let's do, um, let's do outrageous. Patrick, do you have an outrage this week? Other than the fact that you had to sit in the House chamber for four and a half hours on Thursday <laughs> That's night. always a joy. I, I always look forward to it. Um, I'll go two, two quick ones. And one is that... The jobs numbers for all of 2018 were revised, as they always are each year. They were revised down, and we didn't hear anything about it from the Department of Labor and Training or other offices of the state uh, who trumpet all sorts of other jobs numbers and put out the annual numbers. Um, I guess these revisions weren't what they were looking to highlight. And then quickly, one more. The Senate is still not recording either video or audio all of its uh, hearings, and it's probably time to do that. Why is that? Well, I'm trying to find (laughs) that out. I don't know exactly, but part of it is logistics, and they don't have room for cameras, but the the House records audio at least on, I think, all of their hearings. Doesn't the Senate complain we don't get as much coverage? Well, maybe they could help themselves, right? Bill, what do you have? I, it, mine always somehow seemed to revert back to something Trump. And, and I've always left uh, children out of the mix for the years that we've been getting together and doing this. And in this particular case, I'm going to make an exception for Ivanka Trump. And I think I can do that because she's taken voluntarily a position in the White House with President Trump. And, and so I think that well, places... Well, she's not 10 years old. I, I mean, that, yeah. well, I don't want people to think I'm picking on a child of a politician because she's certainly different than that. And this week I saw her make a statement at a speech she was giving that people, and mainly women who she was referring to, who were losing certain benefits as a result of tax plans and other things out of the Trump White House really weren't upset about it because they really wanted to work harder to get everything that they should have. 
and that they would feel better if they actually worked for things rather than were given things from the government. And I thought to myself, wow, is she really talking about people being given things? And she's a spokesperson now for people who have come up from nothing and worked all their life to try to put food on the family. <laughs> I don't think she's the right person to be making that statement for the Trump White House. All right, Lisa, what do you have? Um, a couple of times this week I had some instances that I either winced or had, uh, really, kind of. So I was reading a Providence Journal article about abortion, and the um, chairman of the committee was talking about, you know, the time has come for this legislation for us to codify. But the quote, and I, and I know as a spokesperson... This is Bob Cam- Graven, right? It is. And I know sometimes, you know, as a, um, as a spokesperson, we say things, and when we see it in print, and we go, oh, my God, you know, did I really say this? Well, he said about this bill that, quote, it's not throwing out a baby with the bathwater. And when I read that about abortion, I thought, I bet that's one of those quotes that you wish you could take back and not have. And then the other one was uh, after the snowstorm the next day, reading about the hearing um, for the pay raises for the directors. And that um, when asked, the spokesperson, when asked, you know, why did you go ahead with this on a Monday morning when there's snow? And she emailed back, state government is open. And it just, you know, again, one of those kind of uh, quotes or comments that maybe you want to take back or kind of couch a little bit because it came off a little bit cold, that they could have postponed this hearing just to allow more for the public to come and comment on on the raises. Right. All right. We have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, Bill, let's go back to you Uh, nationally. Uh, we have like 437 people now running for uh, president of the Democratic Party. What And that will play out. I'm just going to make my announcement this morning. Well, <laughs> we, we can save that for new, just as the Republicans did. I'm curious. So Bernie Sanders gets in and it looks like Joe Biden now all of a sudden is putting things together. How does that affect the race? Both. I mean, does does Bernie still have the base that he did four years ago? You know, I or did his I w- time pass? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure his time's passed. I would have said initially that, that he probably maybe doesn't have at least the size of the base uh, that he had. But in, in deference to Bernie, um, you know, he raised a significant amount of money very quickly after his announcement. And he clearly has struck a tone with a lot of people, you know, obviously mostly on the progressive wing of our party. Um, I know it's going to be interesting. Obviously, with so many people running, it Does makes Uncle it... Joe become the front runner if he jumps? Well, I think I think the vice president becomes the front runner when he announces for sure. But but you know, people in this day and age, in particular, aren't going to just suddenly fold up their tent because Joe Biden says that he's running. So we're going to have an energetic primary season. I personally don't think all of these candidates are going to stay in, and we're going to see 18 of them on the stage like we did with the Republicans, you know, um, last time around. But it's clearly going to be difficult for some of these candidates to, to, to get traction. To get traction. It's very I, hard to do. And it's funny you use the word energetic, because when I look at Bernie Sanders, and then I, you know, knowing that Joe Biden, I think, will be 76, you know, should he be elected? I don't think of energetic, you know, energetic for And there. people complained about Reagan's age, right? right? He was in his early 70s, right? But, you know, what I was hoping was that the Democrats would look and learn from what, you know, the Republicans, how what we did a couple years ago, having 17, you know, people run for the, for the office. And I don't think that was the best thing. And look what emerged out of that. So, you know, the Democrats now, there are people declaring that they're either running or not running as Democrats that I've never even heard of. So just that they're even thinking that they have the ability or the capability to be president is just, you know, it's just been kind of... I, I think part of it is that social media, like we, we've talked about it here, there are pluses and minuses of social media and access to, to news. And I think that that's all, and I think Donald Trump, you know, we can say what we want about Donald Trump, but clearly 
I think without argument, Donald Trump changed the dynamics of running for office, particularly for president. And now I think you have a lot of candidates who say, well, I don't, I don't, maybe I don't need a ton of money right off the bat. Maybe I don't need to have get beyond, you know, ABC or, or meet the press, you know, every Sunday. You know, maybe I can do this differently. And I think that that's encouraged a lot of people, um, certainly in our party at this point, and probably in the Republican Party. But the problem in the Republican Party is that you've got everyone sort of sitting back because they're afraid to butt heads with Donald Trump, apparently with the sole exception of Bill Weld, at least at this point. All right. I got to hold you right there. That is all the time we have. Bill and Lisa and Patrick, thank you for coming in. And thank you for joining us. Come back next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week, everybody. experiment is generously underwritten by for 30 years a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders hi I'm John Hazen White jr. and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program 